0: Hey, everybody, thanks for downloading this episode of the Chicago Podcast Network's Out Front with AJ and Nick. You can find us on Twitter under Chicago Podcast Network. You can find us on Gmail, Chicago podcast Network at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook on our page there, Chicago Podcast Network. And most importantly, you can support the show by downloading and subscribing to this podcast and all Chicago Podcast Network podcasts through iTunes, Android, and any other device that you use. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks, everybody, and here we go. Hey everybody, welcome to Out Front with AJ and Nick. This is Nick Sarantos, host of this show, and joined over the interwebs by my good buddy AJ Zigneri, who had one hell of a weekend. AJ, say hi to the people.
1: Hey guys, how you doing?
0: So, why don't you tell the people what office you got elected to over the weekend, because it's very exciting, and it gives us an opportunity to really delve into something that's kind of socially relevant. So, tell the people what happened, then we'll get into it.
1: So, um... uh for those who have followed me either on Facebook or um, the kind of things I do in um, activism and politics and everything, I for those who may not know, I'm a member of uh, Socialist Party USA, <clears throat> and uh, I just recently got elected um, at this past national convention as the male vice chair. What does that really mean? Um, I'm just one of the officers who, where we have gender bound, so we have two co-chairs who are male and female, two vice chairs who are male and female, we also have gender balance on the five positions on the national committee as well within the national party
0: okay so i never i mean i knew that you were in with this uh with the socialist party and everything but i never knew that you were as into it that you would be elected to this so i want to explain to the people what i want to talk about today and then we'll get into it a little bit more I have a lot of friends and family members who, when I say I want Bernie Sanders 2016, you know, they laugh and they support it and they're all for it and everything. And I know that you have interesting opinions about Bernie Sanders. But the term that keeps getting thrown around as a negative towards him is he's a self avowed socialist. That's what people keep saying to him, uh, saying about him. And right. people like my father, my mother, even to me, you say socialism, I think. Communism. And I know that that's wrong. But that's the way it's generally kind of perceived by a lot of people. So what I'd like to do today is, uh, being as basically as ignorant about this as I am, I'm going to ask you some questions, and I want you to try to explain why the idea of a socialist shouldn't be so scary to people. Because... Okay, go right ahead. right, so number one. Does socialism mean that I will no longer be allowed to make money for myself.
1: That's not correct. I mean, and and it's going to right to your other point, where when you say socialism, someone thinks communism. And those two have the same ideological foundations, because that comes from Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, going back to the Communist Manifesto. But over time, communism and socialism has actually became more like oil and water. You know, there's a separation there. You know, we look at communism, what um, Joseph Stalin and Leon Trotsky did in the Soviet Union. We looked at communism of what ha- happened in Yugoslavia under Tito, um, in Romania with Nikolai Ceausescu, and how they created more authoritarian states, whereas in socialism, and particularly democratic socialism, which as es- Socialist Party USA is, Um, we're actually striving towards more freedom and equality, you know, the idea of production for use and not for profit, full employment, community, worker and community control, ecological harmony, you know, these are things that we look for in a socialist society. So, no, one would not have monetary gain. You can still have monetary gain, but we're going to do it by not have private banks um, get rid of like the idea of credit ratings, the idea of um, the very things that a capitalist society that the United States has, the United Kingdom has, and elsewhere that are actually being more um, restraining people in order for them to have a better life.
0: Okay. Um, I want to go back to something you said in there, which is no private banks. Uh, to me, you know, you, you say that, and it sounds to me like you want to. Now, again, I'm just trying to play devil's advocate and assuming the worst fears on people's behalf. But if you want to, if you, you could look at that from somebody as the from the outside and say, "No private banks mean that the government is in control of the of the banks." Is that what you're
1: trying to get to? No, because I mean, we have to separate a couple of things here. So, <clears throat> private banks is a different institution than governments, You know. A social society doesn't really mean government control. That's what authoritarian communism is. You know, going back to um, what Stalin and all them did. Private banks and the government are two separate things. What we have is a market-driven society. So, anytime you put money in the bank, the bank institutions then use that on options, futures, derivatives, all this speculative stuff. Right now, so under democratic socialism. You're trying to get rid of that and just have more like public banks and have that be more invested into infrastructure, into education, into whatever we need in society. You know, because right now you put money in the bank and to Chase, U.S. Bank, BMO, whoever, and you just get inundated with surcharges, um, overdraft fees and actually play in the market, you know. Whereas we're trying to take that out of the equation and actually inject it into society.
0: So you're basically saying that you want to do with the way the current debt system is run. That you want to free people up so that money just doesn't disappear into the corporate
1: ether. Exactly. Because okay. right now we have phantom wealth, really. I mean, we, we just have money. That's not really there. You know, you put money in a bank. But somehow we're getting an income. But how are we getting an income when we're in like what? What is it now? $30 trillion? Yeah. You know, but yet we have enough circulated money in the United States, but we're putting all this money into a defense budget. We're putting this money into other things, but we're like trillion dollars in debt. You know. And you look at like the NASDAQ, Dow Jones and everything, and we're putting money into those things. And all that money is being transacted out of Illinois, out of Indiana, out of the United States, and going into the Chinese market, the U.K. market, the French market, um, the Indian market, and for what? You know, Whereas those things should be here in the United States, in our state, in our community. That's where the money should be staying in, not just being thrown over because of the market.
0: I, I'm, I, I guess what I'm trying to, to... – I don't even want to get to that point yet. So with, no, it's just, they're, they're, they, 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 no, I know. And they, and, and I'm glad you're giving me the honest answers here because it's important. We have arguably the number three most popular candidate for president is running as a socialist. And you say that to people and they freak out. I had a conversation with two of my very good friends Thursday night. And one of them said that one of the reasons they would never vote for Bernie Sanders is because of defense spending. He wants to cut defense spending. And then my other friend, uh, Dave, who you've met a few times, brought up that he feels the same way, that defense spending is incredibly important. And I agree that a strong military is important. I don't believe it needs to be eating up two-thirds of the federal budget. I think that's what it's at now, right? Isn't it two-thirds of the federal budget is is defense? Like, roughly.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Around there.
0: So... You want to – your party's objective is to limit defense spending, not to weaken the military, but to strengthen America at home and sort of fix 30 years' worth of economic mistakes. Right. Because if you go back and look at historically over the last you 30, 40 years – I mean, realistically, the people put the line at Reagan, but it really goes back to Nixon – where you started deregulating, you know, certain industries to allow corporations to drive up big profits in the end of the t- which ended up hurting the individual and helping the corporations, right? Right. So, so you want to take the money that's out of that fi- out of those failed systems and put them back into the community also by limiting the amount of money that we're sending overseas. Right. Okay, the banking system in the United States as it exists now is very strangely run where you have multinational foreign conglomerates that own the financial institutions here in the United States. And as things have kind of progressed here and you've had more of these corporations putting their headquarters out of the United States for tax benefits, the, the services that they provide are predatory. And then, on top of that, they're not even paying back to the government the proper amount of taxes based on their profits. And you want to essentially cut that loophole out and make banking a more community-oriented thing.
1: Correct.
0: Okay. That's not as radical an idea as people think. Right? That's historically what banks Correct. were I mean, up it's, until it's, the 80s.
1: Right. I mean... Here's, here's why it's very interesting when you talk to people about um, capitalism and socialism, regardless of what socialist organization people associate themselves with or what have you. Um, because we still have a 1950s mindset that our parents <clears throat> and our grandparents have seen what um, happens when you have people, and I just mentioned the names because these are like the public figures that we know, like I said, the Joseph Stalins, the the, the Tito's in Yugoslavia, the Chesterdows and Romania, so forth and so forth, even Mao's China at one point, where they actually decimated their countries, you know, in the name of their own ego and not for the people, you know, so in socialism, particularly democratic socialism that our party does, it's not about ego, it's actually working as a collective. How do we strive towards it? And if you it would have been awesome if you would have came with me Nick because you would have seen people having discourse and even heated discourse, but at the end of the day we were still around the bar drinking, having fun, talking having conversations and figure out what to do next in order to better our party, not because, oh, you know that person, that person is the leader. There's no cult of personality like you have with certain communists and even certain socialist parties. Okay, but two things I want to
0: go back to in what you just said there. Number one, you use the term working collectively. And I feel like that's one of those things that, you know, to a lot of people who work hard, the idea of a collective workforce you know scares them because here 's the you know it 's the, the the theory of the um, i i think in russia they always used to describe it as the dressmaker if you were if you were a dressmaker in the Soviet Union and it actually behooved you to do less work because at the end of the day, if you were the most productive person on site then your expectations would constantly rise whereas if you were working and slower than everybody else, your expectations never really rose and you were able to stay there together. Under the idea of working together as a collective, under the way that you're saying, how do you protect against the weak link in the chain, for lack of a better term?
1: So I I look at models like what goes on in Mondragon in the Basque region of Spain. It's a a big business over there. Um, They have a factory, they have schools, they have... The Mondragon as an organization has run this town in Spain and they, when they see something like, okay, if they're in the factory, there's like a refrigeration company there. If there's something, you know, we're not going to have enough work who needs work and they put them somewhere else in the organization. So if they are, they quote unquote weak link, or they don't have enough jobs, they'll put them somewhere else in order to continue on and everything else. You know, so because what what you described is what goes on currently in conventional business. If you're the weak link, then more than likely your performance rating will be poorly reflected on you and therefore you will be not having a job any longer. Whereas if you work more in a collective, if shall I say, cooperative environment, you know, you're actually working alongside with your fellow person, your fellow co-worker, and you're trying to figure out how to do the work better and not – be so isolated and be competitive with your coworker, which you have now in society.
0: The The other thing that you you, you mentioned with all of this is, you know, the, the people working, you know, people having uh, disagreements and, and managing to work through it. I saw a great meme over the weekend that, you know, I, I always bring those up when we're talking, but I, I like them because it's a way that people, you know, share information now. And the one that I saw, which I thought was great, was, you know, a Muslim, a Jew, uh, a banker, and a, a Republican and a Democrat all sit down at a table together and nothing happens except they get along fine and become friends because most people aren't assholes. And, you know, th- to me that's, that's an important part of it. I like the idea of your group getting together and, and talking about that. But you also mentioned the, the cooperative aspect and that there's no cult of personality. And, and I see the strengths in that. But as somebody who witnessed the the Occupy movement as much as I did, the, you know, and you and I were at an organization, the radio station that we were at beforehand was was co- connected to an organization that was very involved with Occupy here in Chicago. And I've always felt that mm-hmm. that, that movement suffered from a lack of leadership. Do you not feel like with... Your organization that not having a, a clear leader or even a clear leading tribunal or 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 board doesn't that hurt you in the long run?
1: No, and and I think what I can speak to that is you know I too was involved with Occupy, but I also have a degree from the Ford Business School, and this is why I'm bringing the two up. When you talk about leadership, if you go to any business school or any. Thing dealing with leadership, they will tell you a leader is someone or a group of people that is out front or they're doing something, so they're pretty much providing a directive. Um, whereas Occupy and other organizations, even certain like anarchist collectives, certain socialist groups, or or worker co-ops, where there's a collective consensus on what to do, that a leader doesn't necessarily have to be a person or a specific core group it leadership is working amongst others you know and i used to be the kind of person that thought yeah you need to be the person in front of the classroom um you need to be the head coach you need to be the person providing directive you can still provide a directive among uh, a group of people and trying to empower other people that's very important to empower others to do that kind of work because what we have now is you don't have a manager, a CEO, or board directors empowering workers. You have them telling you from the top down, saying, "You know, you need to do X, Y, and Z, so we can input A, B, and C right now." Whereas you go to say, "Oh, I don't know," uh, the River West Public House in the River West neighborhood in Milwaukee, where that bar is, you have the board trying to empower. Um, the volunteers and the employees of the bar and trying to get communication from them directly and not have like a separate meeting at a separate location and then all of a sudden you get an email from them. Does that make sense?
0: It does. It does make sense, but it <laughs> – I mean, I'm not talking about what socialism is. now. I'm just talking strictly as a group trying to get its goals across. Right. A clear unifying voice historically has always been strongest. There were multiple leaders of the civil rights movement, but if you look back at it, there's one leader, and it's Martin Luther King. right? You have Malcolm X. You had, um, uh, who was the guy who was in charge of the uh, Muslims at that point, the... Farrakhan? Uh, Farrakhan. And you, you have... Muhammad? Yeah. You have those guys who are who are there, but the leader of the civil rights movement, the person putting the message out that people most supported was Martin Luther King. As a result of that assassination or no, you have a unifying figurehead for people to rally behind. You... I see what you're saying because it's, in, in, a, in a way, it, it it protects workers and it protects the people from a megalomaniac in a way of of taking over something that and bastardizing it for their own purposes at the same time you lose the ability to send out a a clear concise message but i I, your way of of putting it where you're trying to get everybody's input is is valid but i i feel that perhaps it it weakens it later which is why you know we've been talking about this for 20 minutes and and i want to get because I think when you say socialist, people automatically assume that you, you, AJ, are a socialist. Therefore, you believe that everything that Bernie Sanders believes, or and vice versa, right? But that's not the case. I might consider myself a Democrat. I don't support all of the Democrats' policies. I support you know cutting a lot of these programs that exist in the federal government that don't necessarily work there are programs that have been initiated that even show some results but long term now we know don't have any dramatic effect an example and i'm sure you'll disagree with me on this is the head start program do you know about you know about head start right yeah 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 head start doesn't work it doesn't not long term it has short term Things it helps kids get to first and second grade, but after I think it's third and fourth grade, any Head Start kids automatically revert to the mean, and they don't have any special benefits. It's a program that was a good idea, but doesn't seem to work. So cut the funding, cut the spending on it, which is a small amount of money, but you you know it's the idea of pennies on the dollar. You keep cutting pennies out of your dollar, eventually you can eat up the entire dollar, you know, and. and to me, I'm just saying as an example, that's one thing that Democrats push for that I'm against. Give me some of the examples based on what you've heard from Bernie Sanders that you are for and that you're against. And I want to get into those issues a little bit.
1: So one thing we have to be clear about Bernie Sanders is this. And you're right, Nick. Anyone can say what they are, but in practice, it's something totally different. You know? Because I could say that I'm a fan of Superman, but I really read Marvel. You know what I'm saying, right? (laughs) I mean, I can I can say it, but I really don't because I don't have the Superman posters and dress up as Superman and talk about Superman and blah blah blah. You know, whereas with Bernie Sanders, is he says he's a democratic socialist. You know, and if you look at what he says, it's not the same thing of what I've been describing this past twenty minutes. You know, because what Bernie Sanders is talking about is more about social democracy, and those are two different ideologies. And if you also look at Bernie Sanders, he is part of the Vermont Progressive Party, which is not a socialist organization and doesn't adhere to any socialist um, ideals or agenda at all. So what he is doing that he just became an independent in a state. And the Vermont Progressive Party kind of took over that state and just became very successful. And he became the figurehead of Vermont, of the Vermont Progressive Party, and that's how people champion around him and everything. Now, there are certain things that he says is good, but, you know, he also, as he said in his last presidential debate, that he supported things of the bombing in Kosovo and he will go into war and, you know, his stance on gun control and everything, which is vastly different than what Socialist Party USA believes in and what a Democrat socialist would believe in and everything, whereas social democracy he is trying to paint a certain utopia that only speaks to a certain segment of the nation. Okay, um... So you're saying... I can, I can imagine you're like writing a whole bunch of things down right now. No, honestly,
0: like, what, I, what I'm doing is just... where Well, no, what, I, what I'm trying to do is, is, is keep it... I want to deal with these, each issue as they come up because I want people to, to really understand this. I don't want people to not... Basically, what it comes down to is I don't want people to not vote for Bernie, Bernie Sanders because they're afraid that he's going to become Lenin. So I want, I want to do what I can to dissuade people from that. And I also want... You know, again, the term socialist is a certain issue, and I want to make sure that we're... We're staying on it, and so that's why I, I'm, I'm taking notes. But also, you, you know, you're, you're a very eloquent speaker, my friend, and I want to make sure that I give you your due. <laughs>
1: Thank you, Nick.
0: No problem. To me, it's interesting, though, the, the idea, because Bernie Sanders has said something that I really respect, which is he has voted for things that he personally doesn't agree with because he's the representative of his constituency. I respect that. I really do. I, I think that that's something that a lot of Dem- a lot of Republican and Democratic senators don't and and congressmen do not do. You may not. L- a great example is is you know Mitch McConnell in Tennessee. Many people in Tennessee support massive reforms to the coal industry, especially environmentally, and he fights against it because and he'll hide behind it. But if you look at the polls you know, you screw even the Mitch McConnell in Tennessee. Look nationally at gun control. Seven, I think it's now 70% of people in the United States support the idea of background, mandatory background checks and psychological evaluations for any gun owners, you know, especially if you've got a crime on your record, you can't get a gun, all of those things. And the the congress and the senate are constantly saying well no the american people want us to defend you know the rights of gun owners and they say yes but they also don't want you just giving guns to anybody who wants them and because of the lobbying and i mean because of the legalized bribery let's call it what it is they stand against gun control despite the fact that the large constituency of the united states supports it they stand against it which is not the job we didn't elect you to represent us as what you believe we elected you to represent our beliefs which means if we tell you we want something you have to do it bernie sanders has to his credit has voted for stuff that he personally doesn't support because it is the wishes of the people he represents right that's a good thing don't you do you disagree
1: no i mean that's a nice thing of, that's what i've always liked about bernie sanders um ever since i got to know him know of him rather um at a very young age, and that is, he speaks the reality of what's going on, and he speaks from the hip and all that, and I, that's something I always really admire about him and what have you, even though there's some things I have disagreed with him over the years. Not terribly a lot of things, but there's some things I had disagreed with him on and have supported his stance on certain things, but not all of the stances and what have you. Um, but that's the reality when you come, when you're in the political arena and that's what the idea of, the pol- of politics is. There are some things that you stand hard line on, and there's things that you have to compromise on and you compromise certain issues because you have to do it in the best interest of your constituents you have to compromise to move forward on your own agenda or you have to kind of play chess and say, okay, I'm moving my rook. Oh, that's gone, but I can move my bishop and I can be successful in the strategy. So, um, so yeah, I'm sure he had to compromise on a lot of things, but for the most part, he has also kind of gotten, when he's been the center for this long, he has actually pushed a lot of things in order to have a greater conversation. If not, trying to help build a, um, in his view, a just society.
0: The, you mentioned banking and you mentioned work. Give me, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this, because I don't want you to just be accountable for everything, but I, the, generally speaking, give me the idea of how a socialist view of America would work. Starting federal, state, local—like just a a general idea. I'm not asking you to explain the entire philosophy in in ten minutes, but just a rough
1: idea. So, like like I said earlier, you know, a social society is something that is has freedom and and equality in there. So we're trying to have people like develop um, their fullest potential with other people and. Be committed to full freedom of um, speech, assembly, press, and religion. Have um, multi-party systems. Have multi-party systems. Um, try to have people over profit, full employment, workers' control. The things I just said earlier, right? Okay, um, and, but and, and okay, okay, yeah, hold on, hold on. But
0: those are all those are all ideas. Talk to me. Well, okay, let's 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 focus it a little bit more. Let's take a, let's take a big company that we all know. Uh, let's go with something really American, a Coca-Cola. Or do you want to do beer or you want to do soda? Let's do beer. All right, well, so you're, you own, I'm trying to think of something that's still American-owned because Miller Lite is now owned by Anheuser-Busch, which is owned by a German company. So let's see, what's an American beer? Sam Adams. You own Sam Adams. Walk okay. me through how a Sam Adams company works under a socialist America. Assuming, by the way, that's the guy who runs Sam Adams, whose name is not Sam Adams, uh, is
1: running that beer company. So we're talk- so we're talking about Sam Adams. If I was running the business, or no, hypothetically,
0: how it would function in a socialist society? How it would function in a socialist society? Like from how workers get paid. So to- I,
1: okay, so. If I was CEO of Sam Adams, how that would look is that all the workers in the brewery um, would have the control of the workplace. And and honestly, I wouldn't be CEO or have managers. Like all of us would be working. So I would be on the ground level with the brewmasters, the people in the the back, the inventory, the docs, and everything, trying to lend a hand. And we all talk unilaterally. We try to communicate what do we need to do? Is this going to be shipped out? Is that going to be shipped out? We're all handling the accounting. We collectively participate on what the budget will look like. We would go out and, if well, with Sam Adams, you know, probably go out in Boston and deliver it by the trucks and everything. We would talk with the bars or certain vendors at our Beer, our product, will be sent to and everything. We try to work with them on that. So it's, again, going back to that collective, cooperative environment where there's no hierarchical system in Sam Adams. It's all horizontal. Everyone has the same pay. Um, There is no barrier of communication. And you would just be a worker. You would actually be doing something that you like. And you would probably um, at if not better than what the going rate is, and you would have lots of time to drink beer.
0: Okay, but and I, you know I got to challenge you a little bit on this because the idea of a horizontal workforce sounds great in theory, but isn't there a place? for, I mean, look, you're the, okay, you're not the CEO, but you're the owner of Sam Adams Brewery. And it's nice that you're out there working with the dock workers and working with the brewmasters and working with, you know, the line assembly people, people who are putting the beer into the bottles. But doesn't that take away from your rather important job of making sure that the budget is staying, that everything is staying on budget? Isn't there a place in your company for a guy whose job it is to just be an accountant? And I understand what you're saying. With everybody gets paid the same, they're working for the company. But to say that is is unfair to somebody who okay. And I'm not trying to be, but you are you're a dock worker right out of high school. You're 18 years old, and your jo- your job is to put the crates of beer onto the truck. That's your job. Somebody else takes the the four years that you're doing that, and they go and they work and they become you know a CPA. And now they come and work for Sam Adams, and they're in charge of the books. Shouldn't the person who went and worked for that CPA be rewarded for their hard work and schooling? And, you know, they have sacrificed their ability to make money to actually spend money to work at a college or to go to a college to learn how to do things, you know, differently. You don't feel that the accountant should be paid more than the doc worker?
1: Oh, no. I mean, mean, don't get me wrong. I mean... Again, we're talking about a utopian... Um,
0: right, right. Okay, I, uh, so I now, just, now I'm just I'll kind of like walking it people, back.
1: But more to your point, you're right. I mean, there is levels. And if you look at different models, like I said on, um, I think it's was Emilio Roma in Italy, other worker co-ops have the same thing. You have workers at a certain rate. You have um, accountants paid at a certain rate. But here's the thing. Everyone decides that. And I know... You know, as human beings, we like to be greedy and everything. But we also have to, like, have rationale for it, you know. So if we're having someone, an accountant, and we know that's an important position, should they get paid at 30 an hour versus the worker who's getting paid at 15 an hour? You know, that's a conversation to have because... But you're saying at least have the conversation. Right. right. Whereas, you know, you have a bit... I mean, if you go to HR, you just throw arbitrary... Um, job descriptions with arbitrary numbers, you know? I mean, you look at any job postings, and it's like, this is the job function, this is what we're looking for, but it pays this. It's like, so that's where it pays this. And if you look at the various job descriptions out there, the job functions when you go into looking for a job, you see what's out there. You know what you can do, but they're looking for this salary or for this dollar an hour, this number an hour, you know. And you look at that, but you know what your needs are. You you know what you need to live on and everything. But this company is telling you you're, we're only going to pay you this. Whereas if you work in a co- work cooperative, you'll have that greater conversation saying, you know, this is my skill set. This is what I've done. And can we work something out, even if you're getting paid less, and you can still do more work and trying to help find ways to compensate in other ways or saying you can do have you do this, and maybe we can have you do that in order to make up the difference? Does that make sense
0: it does um it just seems like a hard sell to a lot of people, but uh you know long term it seems to be the kind of thing that would Eventually, benefit more people than it would ever actually hurt, because there's a thing that goes on where, you know, and and you and I have talked about this many times, but it's the 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 idea of the American culture of I got to get mine, this is mine, like I've worked for it, I got it, I I I, I got to get mine because everyone else is getting theirs, and that's a mentality that's very difficult to combat in the world we we live in today. So as much as I I, I like the idea. I mean, I think, listen, I, it's no secret to you or to anybody listening that I, I'm not a full-on you know, belief in socialism. I believe that there is a place in society for a more socialistic idea. I think the fact that we have to defend the idea that getting cancer shouldn't mean that you go broke is an insane idea. I believe in socialized medicine from top to bottom. I think we should all have access to the same doctors as everybody else. I don't believe that the rich have a right to better health care. I don't think even, if I, and honestly, there are those who would say, "Well, you work harder; you should get access to better things." I said, "Yes, in most things, I'll give you that. If you work harder at your job, if you go to school, you get a master's degree, you get a doctorate, then sure, you should be compensated for that work. But that shouldn't mean that, in the freak instance of a lightning bolt strikes you." means that you are, you know, because you did all those things, you should be treated with more respect. A homeless person on the street has as much right to have access to chemotherapy as a CEO making $5 billion a year. You know, and and I, the idea of a horizontal workforce and the idea of socialized working, you know, I, and I like the idea of your, of the extreme that you guys take it to with your party, but to me, you know, I think it's more middle of the road. It's the idea of, no, you should have it should be mandated that the worker, first of all, I think any corporation that has more than 50 employees, the workers should be unionized. They should be allowed to collectively bargain. I believe that's a more socialistic idea than people are willing to, to think. I mean, I know, I, I would imagine the Socialist Party is a very strong stance on labor unions, correct?
1: It is, and I, I, I would bring up two po- a point in the, the labor and union for a moment, and that is what the United States has not known. Is that the idea of like cooperatives, even like worker cooperatives, that has been around since eighteen forty four? Really, and, during the Industrial Revolution. Really, I did not know that. Yes. The Rochdale Society of Equitable Pioneers. There was ten weavers and twenty other people in the town of Rochdale, England. Okay, they only had like a very limited amount of goods to be sold at twenty eight pounds, you know, of pound sterling at that point. And then they expanded. That business is still around to this day in Rochdale, England, you know. And this is where the Rochdale principles that any cooperative, whether it be in Bangladesh, New Zealand, Nigeria, Rio de Janeiro, or Berkeley, California, it's the same principles. That's been around since the the mid-1800s. But you don't have Harvard Business School, um, the Booth School at University of Chicago, talking about that because they don't look at that as a quote-unquote profitable thing because again they want profit that's what capitalism is now is it the same capitalism that m smith talked about not quite but over time those like milton friedman turn capitalism into a whole different other direction you know so there's a whole different libertarian right libertarian perspective of what capitalism is, and that's where you get all the Forbes of the world and what have you saying, this is what the reality is. This is how you need to make money, whereas cooperatives have been around much longer than what we're doing in the United States. And again, that's going back to 1844. To your point about labor, you're right. Socialism, <clears throat> Socialists have been on the forefront on unions and... Um, For a very long time, going back to the days of, um, well, modern day Europe at that time, in in the United States around the 1900s, we were involved heavily. Especially our party, um, what used to be called Socialist Party of America, was involved in the Pullman strike um, in Chicago. Um, Eugene Debs, who was one of our party leaders. Worked with A. Philip Randolph and all of them, and A. Philip Randolph was a member of the party, by the way. Um, Actually, I want you we to go back because Pullman this strike is all not,
0: that. hold on, hold on. This is the Chicago podcast. When we, AJ, hold on. This is the yeah. Chicago podcast, right? So, explain through your lens the Pullman strike and and give people a little bit of historical perspective of what you're talking about. Because
1: why not? So the so so for the people who don't know about the Pullman strike, there is a town um, in Chicago. Called Pullman, <clears throat> and that's where they made them. Um, P- Pullman made the porter cars uh, on trains, and it was a very successful design that trains used, and they, it was essentially a company town, and what the strike was about was the, the portmans, the porters <clears throat> that worked on the trains, and they were um, the black workers as well as other workers that worked in Pullman. And so even though houses were provided, um, there's a social hall. And the the town is there to this day. Some people actually still live in Pullman. And just recently, and by recently, six months ago, Obama made um, Pullman a federal park right now. So there was a strike among the workers at Pullman because they weren't getting their dues and they were not being heard by Pullman and the other administrators of the company and so they striked. and Eugene Debs hold on but if I recall if I recall
0: my history correctly part of the strike had to do with that yes it was set up under the idea of a worker's paradise but the idea was that you bought everything you needed to survive in the town that they provided your room and board and it was essentially a different form of indentured servitude is that correct
1: That's correct, but also your paycheck came out of your housing. So, when you got your paycheck, a lot of stuff got taken out. So, your housing, they took that out. Food, they took that out and everything. And essentially, you got like a cheaper check. Even though you got paid a certain way, a lot of things got taken out, kind of like where our paychecks today. Um, But regarding housing and food and all that. and other amenities when you lived in... And then the,
0: the prices the, were much higher so, than yeah, they would right have after. been. And the prices were higher with than they would have been if you lived in a normal municipal
1: environment. Exactly. Okay.
0: So I, I just mean, wanted so people to historically know.
1: And, and, um, and, and our party was involved with that, you know, from, from the word go. And it was a very contentious strike. And one of the things, years after the Haymarket Riot in Chicago, which was another um, spark of fight for labor rights in Chicago and around the in around the United States the uh, so looking forward at this
0: upcoming presidential election looking forward at the role that you guys are going to be playing with it um, do you guys have any candidates in local elections
1: that you're really pushing for um, the only thing we have um, at the local level we have, a candidate named Pat Noble, he's getting re-elected. He's running for a re-election campaign for the Red Bank Regional School Board. Um, it's a four-year term, and he got elected, and he's the youngest. Um, he actually went to a, the, one of the Red Bank schools, um, one of the youngest candidates, um, elected officials that we have, and he's running again this year. And no one's running against him. No one wants to – it's an open seat. Anyone can run, and no one wants to challenge him to – be re-elected right now. Okay.
0: The idea that, that I, I seem to find myself constantly having to uh, fight against here with, with other people talking about the idea of a socialist uh, candidate or even that, is that to understand that even socialism... It, it, Socialism to me, the one thing that it has in common with many isms is, you know, people say that the United States is a capitalistic society. No, it's a capitalistic society with a lot of socialist undertones. You know, f- you, people look at the, the country and they kind of go, well, we're a capitalist free market society. He yes, but we have a lot of rules and laws in place to prevent just rapid, uh, ramp, sorry, rabid. Profit mongering. People, yes, you are allowed to do what you can to make as much profit. And as time has gone on here, we've you know lessened the rules. It's gotten worse. But historically, the United States had a lot of socialist uh, leanings in, in just in some basic stuff. You know, the look, the idea of roads is in many ways a socialist endeavor, is it not? I mean, in, in
1: part. I mean, you're right. I mean, we have a mixed economy of some things capitalism and some things socialism and it, it, it really you really have to like peel back the onion a little bit when we're talking about um, the. US economy but we also have to look at China too China who was you know Mao and his um cultural renewal program of taking over the empire and made Mao's China. And he ran as this Maoist um, communism and everything. But Mao was also a capitalist. So when people say China is a communist nation, it's like, well, how are they communists when you have various corporations in China? You know, not only just ours and others, but they have their own capitalism going on as well. Yeah, they tried to buy Wayne Enterprises
0: uh, in Dark Knight. They tried to buy Wayne Enterprises in Dark Knight. It was very wrong.
1: Right. Um,
0: Sorry, I had to get the Batman joke in. It's not not a Chicago (laughs) podcast if we don't mention Batman at least
1: once. (laughs) Right. Um, Back in 2003, I had the the honor of um, meeting with um, Dr. Jean-Louis Lee, and and he was a director of economic development for the state of China, and he was the person that he sent proposals directly to um, the president of China and the council there. And he came to my hometown, and he wanted to know more about the um, rural rural economy and was trying to propose a a macroeconomic plan for China. So I took him around various parts of northwest Illinois. And there was one time we sat down and had lunch, and he and I had a very in-depth conversation about, you know, China's communism and capitalism and everything, and he told me in 2003 that China is trying to move away from communism and, and make it more ca- and more of a capitalist state because the the guard, the new guard in China is trying to transform it from communism to capitalism because they felt capitalism was the way to make more of a profit for China. Okay. This is back in 2003.
0: Right, so you know they're still going twelve years later. And I mean, look, transitioning your economy from one thing to another, and the idea of China, you know, converting to a capitalist uh, economy is not new. I mean, this is something that's been talked about since I was a kid in the nineties. You know, the idea of the—I think it was the first—you'll I, I, know this better than I did—but in nineteen ninety-eight, when we the world the the protest outside the World Trade Organization was in many ways protesting a trade deal with China. Is that correct? Oh you mean
1: the world um, WTO in yeah. Seattle ninety nine?
0: Yeah, sorry, ninety nine. Isn't that wasn't that a big part of that, the trade deals that we were signing with China at the time? If I remember correctly. It I was know. that,
1: but, it was, but no, no, that was that was in part, but mostly in part that um battle in Seattle as it's referred to was more about globalization in and of itself. So it's, the World it's, Trade Organization, uh, the IMF. You um, leave the, um, the, the impossible mission policy. force
0: alone, okay? I, I am tired of the International Monetary Fund going in and stealing perfectly good fictitious movie secret agent titles to, to further their own damn agenda. Okay? It is the impossible mission force. When you say IMF, you are referring to Tom Cruise and Ethan Hunt. Are we clear on that? You will refer to them as the International Monetary Fund on my show. The IMF fights Russian evil syndicate spy things that upset Tom Cruise. Are we clear? What? Yeah, I lost my mind there. It's fine. It's cool. But I will not let the IMF, the Impossible Mission Force, have their name taken by the International Monetary Fund. One of them, you know, lets Tom Cruise run dramatically, and the other does stuff with money that I don't understand. How you doing? You good? Are you afraid for my mental health?
1: I'm just totally lost right now. (laughs) (laughs) Totally lost, I mean... This is a side of you I've never seen before.
0: I am very protective of Tom Cruise's fictitious secret agencies. As am I. It doesn't seem like that. You're, you're improperly used. No, the only reason I brought it up is because over either this weekend or last weekend, I watched the newest Mission Impossible movie, and they Sorry. keep saying the term IMF, IMF, and I'm a pretty you know well-read guy, so I'm like, why are they talking about the international? I'm like, it's the Impossible Mission Force. I'm like, oh, damn. We gotta make sure I feel like there is some short sightedness there, but whatever. No, I'm sorry, I just wanted to have fun with you. But you were talking about the internet you were talking about something important and I went off on a two minute thing about how awesome the Mission Impossible movies are. Continue. Or if you can. And it's a stunned silence from the crowd. Yes. Yeah,
1: um hey. <laughs> um the, the whole so I mean to sum up, I was the whole idea in '99 was globalization is horrible because as you said it took jobs out from the United States because I look at the United States now as more of a third world nation than a first world nation because one of the definitions of a third world nation is that you actually send your raw material to other places to make and then they bring it back you know we don't make. American goods anymore. We don't make anything. We don't do all that. No one comes to the United States to build stuff. Rather, you know, we ship ship stuff to China, to India, to Brazil, to South Africa, to other places, to the United Kingdom, to Germany. and, And for what? Because we can't do that because we're all about making more lean management and trying to cut our bottom dollar in order for corporations to make a profit. The
0: we're getting close to the end of this thing here, and I and I kind of want to you know tie a bow on this whole deal. The we've talked a lot of things today, and and, and it, obviously I think this is a conversation that you and I are probably going to have a couple more times before the election uh, right. kind of <laughs> happens, and especially as long as Bernie Sanders is still in the race. Uh, I guess what. It, what if there's one thing, AJ, that you as a representative and, and you are an officially elected representative, share the people your title
1: again. I'm I'm the male vice chair for the Socialist Party USA. All
0: right. In your representation, in your in your role as a representative of the Socialist Party, as, as at least that organization of it, what are you what would a candidate because I, I know you and we haven't really talked about this, I know you're not very excited about Barry Sanders. Uh, Ber- I keep saying Barry Sanders I am getting him confused with Larry David and it's this whole thing that keeps happening in my head Bernie right. Sanders which we'll get to that before we go but what are I know that you disagree with him on, on several issues I know that you have a big issue with him running as a Democrat uh you and I have talked about that do you want to ex- I'll give you the, the the here let me get out your soapbox hold on just all right. There it is. Your soapbox is down. AJ, explain to the people why you don't like the fact that he's running as a Democrat. Because it is a valid argument.
1: So, he's if he's truly an independent elected official, and he is that. He calls himself an independent senator. When he,
0: he, when he does appearances Vermont. on the news, he has the eye next to his name. He's the independent senator from Vermont.
1: You know, and... And if he was called a socialist, then he should have an S by his name anytime C-SPAN is on, not the I. If he was a socialist, he would have ran as a socialist party in Vermont, not the Vermont Progressive Party. And I understand tactically why he went in and was running as a Democrat. And the other thing people need to know about the Vermont Progressive Party is they're all about this idea called the Big Ten. In other words, Bernie Sanders going in as a Democrat, now we're going to have progressive Democrats come in, we're going to have other kind of Democrats come in, certain socialist organizations come in, or certain socialists, certain whoever, and this is how he builds up his quote-unquote political revolution that he talks about. And the more and more you do that, in my view, if you create a big tent, instead of having a main event, you're going to have several sideshows in that, you know, I want to go to the tent and actually see something, not go off to the sideshow or see this ring or that ring. I want to see the big ring in the tent. And when you go on like Facebook and you have him do his little, I don't know how long it is, like say a minute video of what democratic socialism is, you know, he's really doing a disservice to what democratic socialism is all about. <clears throat> and so, I mean, I would love to debate Bernie Sanders, I would love to debate him. And actually debate them on the notion of democratic socialism alone, not on the issues about democratic socialism. Because at the end of that debate, you would probably see a clearer difference on who really has better democratic socialism, and it's not going to be Bernie Sanders.
0: Okay. The the, the other thing you had mentioned to me uh, all the way back, I, you know, even I would say almost a year ago when this whole thing first really getting talked about, is that your whole thing for the longest time has been trying to promote people to vote for third party candidates, right? Because yes. it opens up funding. And I know that one of the things that you had complained about to me, you know, off air with Bernie Sanders was the idea that if he had run under a independent or a socialist tag and had gotten, I think you've said the number is 3% of the vote, he, mm-hmm. he gets, you know, federal funding to, to move forward under that thing is that something that is still bothering you with him
1: yeah yeah it is because if he is running at, again if he has the i by his name and he wants to have real discourse then go and run as a independent or third party candidate because while you're running under the banner of democrat all the signature requirements to run out is lower you know instead of 25,000 signatures in the state of Illinois, at minimum to run for president, you know, it's only a few thousand. You know, instead of a hundred thousand signatures in Oklahoma, you know, it's a few thousand, you know. So he doesn't want to do that. He don't he doesn't want to spend the money, he doesn't want to spend the time, and he sure as hell doesn't want to file lawsuits, which he has bigger coffers than most third parties do. And it would be behoove him if he actually followed suit or better yet, you know, attack the Federal Election Commission on having universal um, signature requirements or at least saying, hey, you know, if you want to have greater conversations, let's have a multi-party system so that third parties and independents can run for office and not negate them by having the vision of signature requirements. Because at this point. You know, as a Democrat, you can have low signature requirement. It's costs less to do that. It will cost less to pay canvassers to do that and everything. But it will cost more money if you ran uh, a canvas team in New York, Pennsylvania, Oklahoma, Illinois, Georgia, North Carolina, and I'm naming those states because they have high signature requirements. How you know? high is the signature and requirement in
0: a state like North Carolina? What's that? Well, I'm not – North Carolina isn't the biggest state – you know, population-wise, what's the requirement there?
1: 40,000 to 40,000 signatures. That's like a tenth of the population
0: of but, North Carolina. You, but you
1: need a minimum of that, and you need more than just the 40,000 signatures.
0: Okay. The more you explain to me the the way independent and third parties are screwed over by the country, the more it makes me root for them just because I'm a fan of the underdog. The, it's, it's, it's disturbing that you can't get that we are so polarized just down to these two parties that when a man emerges from all of that muck, and people keep calling him a kook, people keep calling him crazy, but Bernie Sanders... You know, I think John Stewart at it best, like, yes, he's a kook in that he's a man running for office and he actually is sharing what he truly believes, which, you know, that's the whole argument between him and Trump is that people are going, the reason that they like both of them so much is they just feel like they're not being filtered by anybody else. You know, the joke has constantly been with Hillary Clinton that Stephen Colbert keeps making it the personality that the Democratic Party has assigned her this week, you know, and it, I find that the idea, though, of a Bernie Sanders run very... The fact that he's gotten this far, being a socialist, is an amazing thing because he is at least opening... Listen, at the end of the day, you've got to be excited. You personally have got to be excited that these issues are actually being talked about in a serious manner. He has forced the political industry to kind of have to address these concerns. Does that at least make you happy?
1: Oh, no, I mean... Like I said before, I mean, even though there's issues that I disagree with Bernie Sanders on, what I've always appreciated about him and trying to learn more of his tactics is how he is able to draw in conversations in an arena that he is in. Because had he not run, we would never have had certain conversations or have the public understand certain things, or at least being brought forward into the political arena in the spectacle that's called the presidential election, you know? So I'm, I'm, I'm glad for that, but I wish... Um, I, and I, I'm just going to restate it. I mean, if you're going to call yourself one thing, actually do it and not just um, think it's something else, because it's not, you know? I mean, you can call... If you think calling... How should I put this? A mountain lion is called many things. It's a mountain lion, it's a cougar, it's a puma... But it's the same thing, you know. But in reality, socialism, democratic social, socialism, is a lion, and what he is called a lion is a tiger.
0: Okay, okay. I think that's as uh, I think that's as good a place to stop as any when it comes to this week. I'm sure we'll talk about this later on as this election goes forward. Uh, Aj, thank you so much for signing in and doing this with me. I hope you, uh, I hope people listening, you know, learned a little bit something about socialism, so that you're not so scared of the idea of the crazy man with the white hair who doesn't have a comb uh, running for office. Aj, is there anything else you'd like to say before we get off?
1: No, and I'm glad you um, wanted to talk about this. And you know, um, you know, I'm. I, I know it was a little bit one-sided because we're like this. One, you know, no, 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 no. That's gonna going to happen. happen. That that podcast network.
0: Yeah, I mean that's that's going to happen sometimes. I don't mind it being one-sided as long as you know one side knows what they're talking about. And, then, and truth be told, in an issue situation like this, I feel it's better for me to come in with as little research as possible because it forces me to have to ask you the questions, and then therefore the audience can kind of get an idea, you know, straight from the horse's mouth, what we're talking about here. Because it's really easy for, you know, to go online, and it, which people don't even do, and come up with a, a half ass thing. But the truth is, you know, you're the, the, the vice chair. You might as well, you know, talk about it. It's something that's important to you. And, you know, we do people a disservice if we have that kind of access to not, you know, really go through it. And, you know, I'm, I'm a Chicago Democrat through and through, so it's not like I've got a lot of connections or even ideas of what the Socialist Party is. And I I want to know more about it, because if you ask me right now if I had to vote for president based on the candidates who have declared, clearly I would vote for Ted Cruz. Really? Well, no, I just really wanted to... I, I, honestly, I was expecting you to react a little bit more to that crazy idea, and, and you didn't, and you've disappointed me and the audience, and realistically, I'm, I'm going to have to go cut myself, because I thought you would react more to the idea of me. Or is it just that it was such an outlandish idea that you can't even react to it?
1: No, I'm so shocked from
0: your IMF comment. <laughs> ah, fair enough. All right, folks, that has been the Out Front with AJ and Nick. This is the Chicago Podcast Network. Stay tuned. Get all their details on Facebook, Twitter, the Google+. We have a Google+. Uh, we've got a website, chicagopodcastnetwork.com. All of that stuff, you know, find us on the Internet. Share us with your friends and neighbors. Make sure that you, you know, keep promoting us so we can keep doing the good Lord's work. AJ, man, thank you so much. You want to uh, say goodbye to the people?
1: You lied,
0: people. And that's it, folks. We will talk to you guys later in the week. This has been the Chicago Podcast Network. We're out. This has been a production of the Chicago Podcast Network theme music provided by the Free Music Archive, Morning Blue by Josh Woodward. That's Josh Woodward on the Free Music Archive. Thanks so much for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Gmail. It's 106 miles to Chicago. we got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it.